guys, you are listening to Straight Up, hosted by Kathleen and Eleanor. If this isn't your first time here, then you'll know by now that we always start this podcast with a next level cocktail recommendation. Yep, we have got you, and this episode is one of our favorite bottled cocktail brands, Bottle Bar and Shop, which have just won a Mahusif Four Great Taste Awards for their delicious small batch natural bottled cocktails made in Southeast London. So our wonderful guest for this episode is author, journalist, and broadcaster Pandora Sykes, and her favorite cocktails are either margarita or a lychee martini. So Bottle Bar and Shop sent us a bottle of each, and while an hour's recording didn't give us quite enough time to drink both i think that would probably have ended in chaos for everyone we did get stuck into the lychee martini which was just divine it really was it was just like so light and drinkable loved it i finished mine so quickly i actually can't believe we haven't had a lychee martini on straight up before because they're one of my favorite ever cocktails even though i don't like lychee weird fun fact honestly yeah (laughs) so elegant and delicate perfect for whatever season before or after dinner honestly these are the kind of cocktails that you can drink from noon what's particularly special about these bottled cocktails is that they are made by a husband and wife duo natalie and julio and they also have their own cocktail bar of the same name in catford which is where they make all the infusions and cocktails by hand in tiny little batches so that the quality remains at the highest level their cocktails are made with all natural ingredients so you can drink easy knowing that your cocktails aren't stuffed with sugar and additives which also makes your hangover so much better the next day it really does and there are so many cocktails to choose from whatever your taste there are lots of twists on classics from cacao martinis to the rum old-fashioned you guys are gonna love it you can buy these online for nationwide delivery at www.bottlebarandshop.com or you can go find them IRL at 2 Catford Broadway and do go thirst over them on Instagram at bottle underscore bar underscore shop to get you really in the mood thank you so much to Bottle Bar and Shop Hi and welcome back to Straight Up, the podcast that sits down with your favourite stars to talk about the songs that have soundtracked their highs and lows. To get the creative juices going and to help our guests comfortably spill their secrets, we always record over their favourite alcoholic drink, getting deep into everything from first breakups and formative teen experiences to big life changes and meaningful failures. We do love an anecdote. It's the journalist within us, of course. It's hosted by me, Eleanor Halls, and Kathleen Johnston. Yep, and this week, our guest is maybe mine and Ellie's biggest girl crush of all time. Can't lie. I mean, again, probably the journalist within us, but it is the incredible author, journalist, and broadcaster, Pandora Sykes. You'll no doubt know her from The High Low, which is the hit podcast and outright cultural phenomenon that she hosted alongside Dolly Alderton and very sadly for all of us many fans ended on a massive high in December 2020. More recently, her Pieces of Britney podcast for Radio 4 has also been a runaway success. It was the most informative, researched and actually nuanced take on the whole very sad Britney saga that we've heard by Miles. So if you haven't listened to it yet, then definitely, definitely go and check that out because we loved it. Absolutely. You recommended it to me and it was such a great recommendation. So on with our chat with Pandora, we talked about friendship, motherhood, anxiety, the high-low, of course, and so much more. She was a total delight and we didn't want the interview to end. We hope you loved this episode as much as we did. Also, sorry for my absolutely shocking sound quality at times. I mortifyingly and very patronizingly tried to correct Pandora's perfectly positioned mic at the start, then forgot to check my own and it recorded through my damn headphones. So if I'm a little quiet in this episode, that's because I'm desperately sweating and trying to fix it in the background. Poor angel, it does happen to the best of us and making a podcast is really just a never-ending run of tech failures, which actually does remind me that if any of you listeners do want to hear more about what it's like to work in the media, then make sure you check out our episode on behind the scenes of celebrity journalism. It's packed with some very, very fun stories about working with everyone from Dua Lipa and Gwen Stefani to Liam Neeson and Sean Mendes, and it's the episode just before this one. Yes, let us know what you guys think. Also, if you have any book, podcast, TV or film recommendations, then do let us know for an upcoming episode that we're working on that you guys are going to love. Just shoot us a DM. Our details are in the show notes. Elsa's actually going to Barbados literally later this week and is going to be able to lie on a beach, listen to them all, go through all the recommendations. And I'm just so insanely jealous. It's actually unreal. But not to be a hater because I know you're going to have the best time. I'm really happy for you and it's very deserved. You're Thank you. Yes, you're not very hatey. You're not very you're not a very jealous person. Although actually. you're going to get a really good suntan. No, I don't tan anymore because I get so nervous of um, fine lines that I just slather myself in SPF 50. Well, it's going to be I haven't. I literally haven't tanned for two years. Sorry to make that negative. Yeah, it's going to be great. 
It's going to be yeah. great. You'll have lots of brown. I will. Um, and thank you, Marlon Percy, for our music and editing. Otherwise, please rate, review and subscribe. Enjoy, guys. Pandora, welcome to Straight Up. Thank you so much. We are so excited. We're trying not to fangirl, but as as most other women of our age, we were huge, huge fans of the Hilo, been fans of your writing for a very long time, and also, most recently, obviously, loved the Britney podcast. It was just next levels, but we'll come on to that later. Uh, we always start with a little icebreaker. You have a cocktail here. What have you gone for? Have you gone lychee martini, or have you gone margarita? I went for a lychee martini, a pre-mixed <gasps> lychee martini. I do, did so I. did we. So, we'll have a little cheers but to start off um we always launch in with an icebreaker just to make you know everyone feel comfortable and just set the tone nicely you have had quite the extraordinary time both with work you're a mother to two children you're a very busy woman and of course we have had a pandemic going on for the last year and a half that does make a difference but when was the last time you actually got drunk Ooh. I think last week, last Monday, which is a terrible Ooh, night. I know. It's a terrible night to get drunk. But Oh my god. I know. That is so old school. Well, it it did feel quite old school actually. I went to see my old pod wife Dolly interviewing Stanley Tucci at the Palladium, which feels really 90s. The Palladium I think of as very 90s. And then he had a Negroni bar afterwards. So, yeah, I think it was it was predestined that I would be drunk. But Monday night is, is terrible, terrible to, you're screwed for the whole week. Are you good at working yeah. for a hangover? Or are you like, the next day has to be a write-off in those, you know, special circumstances? I'm actually better at working through a hangover than I am parenting through a hangover. Because <laughs> if you're working, especially if you work from home mainly on your own, then you can at least shut off kind of annoying people. Whereas being hungover on a weekend and having children who just, you know, what my three-year-old asks questions. She's at that age where she asks questions constantly. So I actually think that's probably more stressful being hungover than work. So yeah, I'm okay at working on a hangover. Yes, you can control the loud noises in an office, less so with screaming children, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let us cheers our lychee martinis. Cheers, ladies. Cheers. Cheers. Fabulous. Oh, that's really nice. Your fabulous career, Pandora, that as yeah, as Kathleen says, we have been following avidly. Um, especially as Well vice versa. Oh, well that's very kind. Can you tell us what you were listening to growing up? Were your parents fans of uh, some artists in particular? What was soundtracking your, your early years? absolutely no musical influence from my parents um <laughs> I at a push I'd say they probably liked the Beatles but no we did not grow up we grew up in a really bookish house and there was always lots of noise but I think it was more just the radio rather than music I have never ever had a conversation with my parents where they've said this is such a tune let's put it on the record player I don't even know what formative experiences people <laughs> yeah. have with their parents and music so no absolutely um none we were quite musical as a family in that we played lots of different musical instruments there was a period where I played everything from the flute to the recorder did the drums the piano guitar oh, wow. I mean it was, it was ridiculous I just endlessly played musical instruments I can't play any of them now so it's a massive waste of money <laughs> don't don't pay for your children to learn instruments or if you do pay for them to learn how to play either the piano or the guitar because those are social instruments that they might actually use as an adult but who is going to use flute playing as an adult <laughs> now well I played the flute and I did find it quite good in the sense that I was I could be in the orchestra and play the Lord of the Rings uh, soundtrack <laughs> okay niche um for the most most of us I would say haven't taken our flautistry or recorder playing <laughs> into our old age. Uh, so no, absolutely no musical influence from them. And I think the first music I remember listening to, except for the soundtrack to Oliver, I watched a lot of musicals, um, would have been the Spice Girls. That was my massive, I don't even know if I can call it a musical awakening, but that was like my first musical obsession. 
yeah, that's the same as me as well. Literally, just I had the pencil case, the ruler, the poster, and I remember I was getting my room painted, and I was like, I really want to have it. My mum was like showing me like borders of daisies and stuff, and I was like, no, I want to have white with girl power painted on the ceiling in their font. And my mum was like, the thing is, you're gonna actually have this room for like ten years, so I just don't <laughs> think that that's gonna be appropriate. I don't think you're gonna want that. Oh I was like, no, no I what will, a party pooper! So she didn't I let know. you have girl power on your ceiling. No, which actually I think would have been kind of like fun and retro, you know, even to do rem- out. But <laughs> do you remember? I think you guys are a little bit younger than me, but do you remember when? Um, so impulse body spray was really big. Yes, and Huge. Spice Girls did a collaboration with Impulse, where I imagine it was meant to smell like all five of them and it literally smelt like <laughs> another big thing from the late 90s it smelt like fart spray oh, oh fart spray i remember that what's fart spray i've never heard did of you never have spray. any fart spray it was like a really so kind hideous. of yeah and it didn't smell like farts it smelt like the london like dungeons s- sulfur or like yeah oh. just like old oh god <laughs> sorry why was there a fart spray because it was oh, like um yeah. like a prank thing, so you'd like oh, someone okay. would spread under the table. Like it was cool. That's why it was yeah. really cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a sister, aren't you? You're one of was it three girls? I've got two sisters and a brother. Yes, yeah, so I'm the youngest of four. So one of four. So when you guys were growing up, yeah, what was the atmosphere like in the house? Like you were saying, it was quite busy. You guys were quite bookish. Was it loud? Was it kind of like mayhem? Or I know you're quite an organised person. Were your parents like that? Yeah, my mum was super organised and tidy. Yeah, they're both pretty organised, my parents. Um, My mum was at home raising us. My dad worked away a lot. um, And so, yeah, she was always at home with us. We had lots of animals, so it was always quite... um, uh, I don't want to use the word bucolic, but it was quite... uh, (laughs) I suppose there was like a wild, a wildness. Like I always remember... um, my mum would never wear shoes and I literally didn't Unbrushed know what, hair. Yeah, I didn't know what makeup was until I was about 12. Like she was very uninterested in um, everything like that. And she always used to say, I don't understand how I birthed you because I obviously worked in fashion first uh, for the first kind of five years of my career. And so I always loved like, not necessarily clothes, but I liked arranging stuff. She would come into my room and I'd have moved the whole of my room around in the night. Um <laughs> And, or I'd have cleared out, I love decluttering. So I'd have like decluttered my room and stuff like that. So I was always quite different, but there's quite big age gaps between my siblings. So it was kind of part chaos. But then by the time I was eight, both my brother and sister were at university. So I actually didn't live with them, I suppose, for um, that long. So day to day, it was often me and my mum uh because my sister went to boarding school when I was three four um and then I went when I was 11 but there was a good kind of six years at home and it was felt like it was just me and her so I was sort of half an only child I suppose for half the year sometimes I can't remember but I remember it feeling like it was just me and her I wonder as well if you think going to boarding school was particularly triggering for your anxiety having spoken to several friends who have been to boarding school as well I think it was um the pressures of not just being good at school academically but being so popular because obviously your friends um have to be so important to you I obviously don't have anything to compare it to so to know that I'm this way because I went to a girls boarding school rather than to a co-ed day school um I feel quite nervous about girls schools now generally uh just because um friends of mine at co-ed schools at the time would say you know it's very interesting seeing uh people from your school because there's just this there's this different layer of anxiety that actually having like boys present isn't really part of our part of our lives so I feel like there was kind of a I don't know a different atmosphere when you're at school with with boys um and I wonder if it would have been quite good for me to have had that kind of levity and almost like prankery that that boys bring. Yeah. yeah. Um, more generally, I, d- I think boarding schools are pretty mad as well as obviously being um, like extraordinarily privileged. I mean, it's not, it, 
it's that yeah it's, I, I won't send my own children to boarding school I was obviously very lucky to have that education but it does feel a million miles away from how I would want to parent um I was very anxious when I was younger and so I I kind of shiver a bit when I think back to being at school and um it, yeah it's a pressurized environment for sure especially because it was it was very academic like the hardest the hardest I've ever worked was for my GCSEs. You know, people will say now like, oh, you work hard. And I think, well, I got up at 4 a.m. every day for a term during my GCSEs. Oh my like, God. I haven't done that since. I know, it was, but it was, <laughs> yeah. it was ridiculous. You know, it was, it, was, it was everything for me. I remember getting my results and um, I got, I mean, this is pathetic, but I got two less A stars than I wanted and I was really disappointed. Oh. Oh. Um, no, so, I, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. Um, in fact, I think some people look back on their school days as like great memories. I literally think I hated every year after year 10, I think. I just think I'm much more, um, I'm much more comfortable, I'm much more content and able to access contentment as an adult. I would say that as a, as a child and as a teenager, uh, I, I, I didn't know how to describe how I was feeling. And yeah. I didn't know how to sort of regulate my behaviour. Um, and and now as an adult, I think I, obviously you'd hope that as an adult, you have a better grasp on that or it's slightly worrying, but you know, not given. <laughs> Beyond like the academic pressure, was there like a social pressure? Like, was it one of those schools that had like, was quite cliquey, like obviously girls schools, and I'm like saying this speaking from experience as well, can be quite intense socially. And I always think now, like when I speak to people who have, girls and my sister is 15 as well but people whose daughters are in secondary like the way that things were now with the added layer of like whatsapp and other like mediums with which to exclude people and stuff is literally Mm. insane I know I'm so 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 glad that we didn't have social media like we barely even we used emails but there was like firewalls on the internet so you can use it (laughs) after a certain time like it just yeah um it just was not absolutely not a not a thing yeah there definitely were social pressures I think um I was quite lucky in that I sort of had a few different groups which was quite nice I I I don't really I don't think I was either cool or uncool um as you would define it then uh but definitely I observed that like a lot of my year had eating disorders for example and I I don't know if this is just anecdotal I haven't looked at the evidence but it felt like eating disorders were much more prevalent in girls boarding schools than they were in co-ed ones um I remember feeling like I was a rarity for not having one at some point which I do think about a lot and I definitely look back on as being really exacerbated by uh, the early noughties and that kind of, I mean, it's something I talk about in the Britney podcast, but, you know, heat circling people's body parts and all of the celebrities at the time being unbelievably thin, like size double zero doesn't even exist as a size. Um, like heroin chic. And all of, and yeah. all of the fashion as well. This was a bit after heroin chic, actually. This was like Misha Barton, Lindsay Lohan, Rachel Zoe. Heroin chic was about... I'd say about 10 years before, because that was kind of Kate Moss and Jamie King. Um, but the yeah, the fashion was all, you know, really, really low rise jeans and G-strings and crop tops, like very, very unforgiving clothes where, um, I mean, yeah, you had to be skeletal really to pull them, to pull them off. Um, which, yeah, looking back, I think that was a very damaging time to be a teenager. Definitely. And I also do think that in my school, it was less maybe pop culture that was influencing but once someone had lost a lot of weight I did notice that everyone else wanted to lose more if not uh, the same if not more as just another way of competing of course yeah the, I think there's definitely an element of yeah. I remember at school uh that there would be years above or years below us that were like known for having an eating disorder epidemic you know there would be certain yeah. years that were struggling more than others but in the same way yeah. that there'd be certain years where there were more smokers than not there'd be certain years where there were more girls that had had sex than not. It, it You know, it's yeah, there were true. all different kind of um, movements depending on the peer group, basically. Can you tell us about a song or an artist that you associate with 
First heartbreak, first romance. First heartbreak would be Cry Me a River by Justin Timberlake. <laughs> oh, God. And that hits home even more now that you've done your Britney podcast. I know. I remember I remember listening. Well, it actually reminded me of being at New Year with my then boyfriend when I was 15. So then anytime I heard it afterwards, it would it would remind me of, of that relationship. But also um, uh, songs that I really remember from that time were the Fugees and Jurassic Five. And uh, the Fugees, Jurassic Five. Yeah, I listen to a lot of hip hop. The Fugees, Jurassic oh, yeah. Five, TLC, Aaliyah. Um, God, I had a major Savage Garden phase. Brandy and Ray J. <laughs> Oof, Ray I J. Yeah. Brandy and Ray J. I know, so dodge now. Oh, yeah. R. Kelly. Uh, Lighthouse Family. Wasn't that like one of your funny like Hilo? It was when I thought R. Kelly was in the Lighthouse family, which I'm pretty sure the Lighthouse family would not want anything to do with him now. Uh, Yes. um, I don't know how I... How I make... I think I thought he'd done like a Lauren Hill because she was obviously in the Fugees and then became almost even more famous as Lauren Hill. So maybe I sort of assumed that he'd done a similar trajectory, but I feel awful even saying that. I don't want to tar them with his brush. (laughs) But it's, I feel like it's so easy. Like, and I know when you guys were doing the Hilo, you had to often have like a little NB at the end of some episodes. To be like, by the way, sorry, we got this thing slightly wrong last week. Like, people are just so unforgiving. Did you find that part of it really difficult? I know I'm kind of jumping ahead to the Hilo years now, but yeah, we have to do like a, a, a weekly mayor culpa. I mean, luckily, both of us are like very happy to always say we know nothing, we got this wrong. Um, but definitely, it. I think it made me realise how much bullshit people talk just normally as as just having conversation. You know, you say, you bring out facts, you get someone's name wrong, you pronounce it wrongly, but like, you're just talking to your friend, there's not someone Googling it. Uh, there's no audio recording of it to hold you to. But yes, I just became really aware of how much I misunderstood, how many facts I misremembered, how many names I didn't know to how to pronounce, how many words I didn't know the meaning of or know how to say <laughs> right. So it was pretty constant. It's not a bad lesson, but it was. It did sometimes feel like a constant learning experience. Guys, do you want an amazing discount on sanitary products that will literally change the world? Then let us introduce you to Dame, the world's first climate positive period brand, making products that are both healthier for you and the planet. It's also a very impressive and persuasive 25% discount. And all you have to do is use the code UP25 at the checkout at wearedame.co. So that's a capital U, capital P, 25. We are obsessed with these products and we promise you will be too. We genuinely only work with brands that we really love. And Dame is like this female founded, green, incredible business, totally changing the game. Uh, being completely honest until this year I hadn't really thought about the grim reality of where period products actually go how much they contribute to landfill Um, I had for a while been nervous about the health implications of tampons because I knew the plastics and chemicals in them literally leak into your body and you know I think we can all agree that that is very gross and should not be happening Um, when I first heard of Dame though through a friend it was music to my ears because the products were exactly what I'd been looking for I just needed the push to put them to the test and we hope that this lovely juicy discount will be yours We have personally tried both the reusable tampon applicator and tampons and the reusable pads and trust me when I say that we are never going back. Dame have already saved hundreds of millions of pieces of plastic from going into landfill and accessibility is also a big part of their mission. Dame work to ensure that people who have periods everywhere have better access to products, education and resources and most importantly however the products are as we say just really great. So if you haven't already check out wearedame.co you're probably on there as I'm speaking right now. We'd recommend shopping there for the discount, obviously, but also worth mentioning. Uh, stockists are Boots, Waitrose, Sainsbury's and Ocado. Thank you so much to Dame. Because I remember reading that you actually hired a sub-editor after a while. I mean, obviously, I think once you hit a certain number of listeners, you probably have a duty of care to obviously fact check and hire someone to do that. But I also wonder if it was prompted maybe by um, something that went wrong or a complaint about something or I don't know, a really full inbox of um, corrections after a particular episode. Yeah, what what prompted that? I don't remember there being a particular moment. Um, I think it was probably when we were pregnant 
we were pregnant. That's weird. I was pregnant. <laughs> uh, with, but you know, oh, she she was with she was with me on that journey. Um, I think we were just really aware that it was. It's only looking back when I can't believe how much other stuff we did alongside it. You know, we very much saw it as kind of a one day a week job, but it wasn't really. It was so much more than that. So we we felt. <laughs> Lots of people just don't reply to emails. That's just like their MO. And I experience that all the time. I email someone and they just, you know, don't reply. I hate that. I have just never wanted to be that person. And I sometimes have been that person and it eats me up inside. So we suddenly thought, oh my God, how have we not done this? How have we not got someone to help us with the inbox so that everyone feels listened to? Uh, Because it did turn into a kind of community, which we hadn't anticipated. And then the fact checking was, again, just really useful for expediency so that we didn't have to hunt for an hour. And we used to always try and email people's publishers ahead of the time, say, we're talking about this book or we're talking about this TV show. Can we check the pronunciation? And that can take... um, I can take a while. You might get an editor out yeah. of office. It might get put across to a transla- transatlantic editor. But that was something we really tried to do every week. And so having um, Abby, who's a great journalist in her own right, having Abby just helping to yeah keep track of the inbox to do some due diligence for us. Because um, we never actually had a producer. We used to call our... We used to call our sound editor our producer, but it's actually... Charlie. Yeah, it's actually weirdly that I've only realised since that he was a... I mean, he's brilliant, but he didn't produce us in that um, we did all the bookings for authors. We would do all the editorial cuts. We would listen and we would say, could you cut it here? Could you put this music in here? Could we insert this clip here? Um, And I didn't realise that actually that's production. So I think a lot of time went into the production of it and this is all only stuff really that I've now learned I've worked with actual production companies or corporations because you know we did it so on the hoof but I think that's the best way to learn actually we had no expectations we didn't realize how big it was really probably until the high-low tour uh, and uh, then it was kind of shortly after that that we decided to bring it to a close so it, it for the first three years you know we just weren't really there was no agenda, really. And I know you've spoken about this on quite a few other podcasts before that you did, you wanted to end the high low on a high. It was the kind of pinnacle of where it was going to be. And you and Dolly had always said four years, you've never worked, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, paraphrasing, you've never worked in a job for longer than four years. Like you've always been quite um, specific about wanting to like move on to the next thing. That must have still been quite a hard choice with the high low just because it was so unbelievably successful like we're saying and you'd gone on this tour and seen how many hundreds of thousands of women were getting so much out of it was was there something that like pushed you to make that decision even more or was it a principal thing like you said that you both were like well we always said this or were you just actually as much as it was a success four years is quite a long time like did you just feel ready to like move on to something different yeah basically that um it I know do you know what I don't think we realized that people would think it was this momentous decision until after it was finished and you know a year almost a year on I still get I still get asked about that a lot and also I think people thought there would be dirt I've been stopped on the street before outside a coffee shop and people have been like so why did you really end it um but there no there, there really isn't any dirt I don't neither Dolly or I are we just wouldn't let we wouldn't ever let something end because there was a bad feeling it would always come from um a a kind of place of mutual understanding and compassion um yeah there were multiple reasons I think it was neither of us could ever do another project full-time while the high-low was happening um it was it, it did it it was quite demanding so you know Dolly wanted to go off and write a screenplay for her book she couldn't have done that in the high-low um I really wanted to immerse myself I, I wanted to try an audio documentary and you know I would not have been able to do the high low alongside Brittany so absolutely something I had to give um I also do I really believe in going out on a high not that we are comparable but sort of doing a flea bag I think is yeah. or faulty towers not that that's aged terribly well but um <laughs> you cannot you you it will probably remain the most successful thing I've done. You know, when people introduce me now, they go, this Pandora's did the high-low. You know, there's lots of other stuff I've done since then, but that is my kind of, 
that's probably the thing that will be on my tombstone. I'm so lucky to have had that. I'm so lucky that it was ours, all ours. No one put us together. No one had a say in any of it. Um, we had people supporting us, but it was so totally our thing. Um, but I also did it when I was having two babies. So I was going through pregnancy and, you know, I had a small amount of time off with both of them. So it was it was quite a hard thing to do and to be expected to always... I think the thing that we found hard is that we were expected to be very informed of everything. And arguably, we were making a weekly show and we were making money out of it. So, you know, don't do it unless you're going to be. And I think we both thought we cannot be this reactive forever. It's not good for mm. us to be this reactive. Neither of us wanted to have to be as on top of the news. We'd be terrible news journalists. Mm. We're both quite antisocial. We both like turning our phones off for a couple of days. Like we're both really similar in that regard. And so that's not compatible with doing a show like The High Low. So I think it was a real mix of lots of different things, but it was really organic, which was nice. Neither, there was no big like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. It was just like this constant conversation, always thinking like, how are we feeling about this? How much longer do we want to do this for? That kind of thing. That actually brings me on to my next question very nicely, just kind of talking about what it's like to work with your best friend. I think um, obviously you met uh, Dolly at the Times and then you started working together on um, the Pan Dolly podcast and then the Hilo. Uh, But you were first and foremost friends. And I think it's, the same obviously for me and Kathleen we have found it actually we've had to actively carve out space for our friendship um because there's sometimes no space for it because we're constantly talking about work no we never we're I think we're really lucky there was always so much that we wanted to talk about um that it was very rare that it would be that we only talked about work it wasn't that thing that when you're parents you like just talk about your children um and I think that probably partly comes from Dolly um in that like we are very similar in lots of ways but we're very different in that I'm quite anal and a perfectionist and she is much more kind of like bountiful with her creativity bouncing between big ideas and so she never sort of let us get hung up on the high-low um I, I, I don't want this to come out wrong but the high-low was never our most important job there was it was it was fun, mostly, and we loved doing it together. And we were lucky that it became kind of a salaried job. But for example, when we were writing books, that was always more important to us. Um, we both had things always that, um, well, the Hylia never came first. And again, maybe that's why it worked. Not that our listeners didn't come first. I'd never want them to think that, you know, a lot of prep went into that and a lot of love and care, um, which is kind of why we ended it, I think, when we did, because you you shouldn't keep doing something like that unless, you know, you're really going to give that love and care. But it was never our primary focus. And there were just always, you know, I think why it worked is because we love to chat. And the fact is that we always would rather talk about... Um, clothes or romance or um sort of modern life and just random things than we would about making a podcast did you find the experience of recording with a friend in that kind of environment to be a lot more fun than when you record your own podcast like do you see your own podcasts I know you've just done a second series um relating to your book do you find that to be more serious work if you know what I mean rather than fun times or I, do you I, actually approach both in the same way I think on the surface it seems uh more work but because there were very clear boundaries that we had with the Hilo, like we never just got in the studio and had a chat um, it didn't not feel like work and also because it went out to you know other podcasts I've done do like I'm pleased with how they do but they're not in the millions every month which is what the high-low was in in terms of fun yes I do definitely feel wistful for because every single week at some point I would pee my pants laughing I don't have anywhere now that I can bring like stupid animal facts or just like the absolute chuff of silliness life yeah so I absolutely miss that's the element I miss more than ever um it's you know it's not so much that I am sad that we have it that we don't do it anymore but it was really fun to get together with someone every week and know that you're going to have that um 
to be able to get paid to do something like that it's very niche yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah of course I miss I miss the belly laughs for sure do you think you guys will work on something together again that's more than say like a one-off event when you're interviewing each other on stage like could you ever see you guys working on a collaborative project for a concerted period of time again or do you think you're both happy doing other stuff now like French and Saunders um <laughs> I yeah I think we will work together again um I think we're kind of exploring I don't know to be honest we haven't um I don't know we you know we haven't really spoken about it but I I always I think that we probably will do something at some point together but um it's just not a convert I feel like we've both kind of gone off all guns blazing with lots of ideas that we want to do um and so it's just not something we've spoken about but yeah I'd love to think that I mean it's a long life I'm not gonna retire till I'm about 95 probably (laughs) um given that there's about three pounds in my pension as a freelancer so I yeah I should I should hope so it would be fun I was just gonna go back to like the um music question and ask if there are any songs that really remind you of Dolly or are there times where you guys first met I mean I know you were obviously an in-house writer and she was a columnist at Sunday Times but I'm sure you must have done some quite fun like fashion parties together that kind of thing god I don't know if we did many fashion parties we were quite um we worked really hard so we were lame we really didn't go out that much I'm actually trying to like go out a bit more now yeah, we chose a song to come on to our shows at the High Low Live. Oh, I remember you joking about this as well. And it what wasn't was it? Baby Shark, but I can't remember what it oh, was. Oh, I wanted it to be, did, yes. I don't know why. I and I feel to. like it was, was it Baby Shark? I, I think we did one the, live. The live episode. record I came to was the Google. Yeah, it might have been Google, Baby Shark the then. House, and I think it might have been. Yeah. God, I think I was, I'd had a, I'd had my baby like nine weeks before, I think. Or maybe that was a different, no, that was a different one. I remember doing our first live record when I literally still had a newborn and being like really, I mean, it was just ridiculous. It was too early to really be doing it, but you know, such is life. Um, I can't, I actually cannot remember what we came on to. In my head, it's R-E-S-P-E-C-T by Aretha, Aretha yeah. Franklin. <laughs> but that's because, or like something to do with like, fire. <laughs> do you find that like, a bit like Kathleen's just done now, that because, okay, you didn't share like intimate parts of your life and that was clearly quite a conscious decision, but it did feel like everyone that was listening was kind of friends with you and Dolly having drinks. Like, do you find that like these moments now, people will often remind you of things that you said or things that you read or watched or did and you're like, I don't even remember that and it's kind of weird that you know this about me. No, it's very useful because I have a terrible memory (laughs) so I just rely on anyone to tell me what my life's been like so far. Uh, I just lost any memories when I had children they sort of ate my brain oh, really? uh, no no I don't I mean I think it's really lovely that anyone like gave enough of a stuff to remember stuff um uh oh, so no I, I don't think that you much. inspired me and Kathleen to go into podcasting I think we did have these conversations Good. at the start Kath, didn't we where we like because I think it validated the, it. yeah it validated the idea that like ladies women, can talk yeah having a chat and that as well like that's a fun like girly chat but can also be like quite intellectual like like when I first listened to Hilo there was nothing else like that well, I don't even know how much there is of it now like there, there aren't that no there aren't that many I mean the reason why I thought we should do it is because there were no female two-handers or any female podcasts in the top 10 um and it's quite rare actually for female two-handers to be to be in there now um I think that uh, I've forgotten the other part of your question, which just absolutely <laughs> proves my point. <laughs> well, maybe moving it on slightly, I was actually really interested to get your thoughts on the creative industries as a working environment. Um, kind of pastorally, I was reading this really interesting piece by Tego Wagba for The Guardian about how creative jobs can often be quite toxic jobs um or, or dream jobs I think can also be quite toxic jobs I think because there is such a personal level of investment in there there's also so much passion that can be quite hard to separate from work I think it really depends on where you work I know that's such a boring answer but I think it really depends on where you work I think it really depends the kind of person you are how boundaried you are between church and state so how like I think the difficult thing with the media is that a lot of people, it's a vocation, it's like a passion project. Um, So something I definitely find difficult now is my, a lot of my work is an extension of me. So it's trying to sort of separate off me as a person and my value with my 
thoughts and interests which might be then something that go into a podcast or a documentary you know how to kind of pull that guillotine down so that those things are very separate um I think I never which was very useful is when I worked in fashion I was definitely in fashion form to better word but it was never my life none you know it wasn't like all of my friends worked in there or my husband worked in there it certainly wasn't what I spoke about outside of work to most people so I I never sort of that world never became my whole world which it often does like if you're at a fashion dinner all anyone talks about is fashion it was and that's what I found really difficult it was so siloed off um and what I love now about what I do which is a bit more I suppose it's like broadly sort of culture lifestyle publishing there's a lot I do a lot of interviewing authors so there's a lot of publishing in there now is there's um it's much more fluid you can be someone who's interested in more things so I don't have to kind of deny parts of myself that I sort of felt like I had to do when I worked in fashion um I do think it's interesting though we there actually wasn't a huge amount of personal chat on the Hilo. I think the fact that people thought that, that there was a lot is hopefully testament to people feeling like they did know us. But if you sort of broke it down, there wasn't a huge amount. But what was also interesting is that we literally never spoke about fashion on it. Mm. And still we would get round, you know, in the 10 best fashion podcasts or, you know, people would be like, you know, uh, this kind wow. of... Um, you made like a concerted effort to like not be fashion as well, right? Like even down to the sponsors. Yeah, yeah. We t- oh, like. totally. We were so strict on that. Um, and it's it's really hilarious. I mean, I think it's just an example of sort of like um, snobbery about populism or misogyny sometimes. I remember reading something about about myself in... There's a website called Airmail, which is Graydon Carter's. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And there was some like absolutely bonkers thing in there where it was like... Uh, it was when I did The Missing, which is about long-term missing people, and it said that I kind of mm. moved on from lighter-than-light fluff to da-da-da. Um, oh, my God. And I... Rude. And I wasn't offended so much as I was just really baffled because I just don't think they'd have said that if it was two men doing it. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting, basically. That's what I would say. It is yeah. really interesting. What kind of um, work do you get? I, I mean what kind of work do you get approached with now and do you find that a lot of the stuff that you're approached with is very much in line with your interests or do you find that you have to pitch the stuff you really want to do and the work that comes to you is maybe based on what people would like you to do that isn't really like you I think it's a bit of both I try and make myself um pitch out quite regularly because I think it's really good for you to keep kind of uh interrogating why you want to do something what it is you want to do so for example just thinking about the other things so the missing and the Britney project for the BBC came to me but I'm about to start working on another audio documentary for the BBC and that was one I pitched to them um I just God, you were like the most perfect fit for the Britney podcast that's amazing I see because I know you wrote the whole thing obviously as well as hosted it and it was just amazing and Kathleen was, recommended it to I me I literally was like texting Ellie like you yeah. literally need to listen to this like I, I had I was quite hungover one day not gonna lie and <laughs> it was like a Sunday and I was like I can't even watch the TV and I just like lay on the sofa and just listened and obviously because it's quite immersive with all the like theatre well not theatre drama sort of dramatised aspects as well and it was just like properly amazing yeah it was, it was like watching lie a TV there and like a documentary but yeah. I did think yeah so my two questions slightly double pronged but one was like was the timing just fortuitous? Like, how did that yeah. happen? Like, that must have taken, like, oh, wow. months and months and months of insane research. Yeah. Like, how could that have come out uh, at the exact right moment when everyone was talking about the conservatorship? Was that just chance? So, uh, no, I think there had been... God, I mean, I cannot remember the time. There'd, of, there must have been rumblings. Um, they approached me in December. I started working on it in early February. And then the New York Times documentary came out. And I remember we heard rumours that there were other documentaries coming, uh, which I really hated. I don't like doing something at the same time as other people. Um, So if we could have done it before anyone else, we would have. But, you know, we were a tiny team. There were three of us. Um, Wow. uh, So we started working on it in February. And then, yeah, it came out at the beginning of July. It was intense. It was was a lot more work than any of us realised because um, we just really wanted to do it 
justice and I've, i think there's an argument and a, a fair argument that you know there's kind of been too much content about her um and i think there's definitely been too many telly documentaries i kind of like to think that we were the authoritative podcast version of that and that we really tried to draw out to look at how her story isn't one that's just happened in isolation and all those different things leading up to it uh, the language, the culture. You placed her in the cultural context in a way that I don't think anyone else did. Maybe like slightly in the New York Times doc a little bit, but like I watched the Netflix one. The, the New York day. Times one is really day. good. Um, and, you know, I'd have loved to have got that access, but like they had, I looked at the credits, they had like 60 people working on it. And, you know, mm. they had some incredible talking heads, that guy from Black Box and of course um, Felicia. But, you know, we weren't, we were not operating within that, scope so what I wanted because I knew that I knew we were never going to get you know Jamie Spears as a talking head (laughs) what I wanted to do is research around it and I really think you know she's a public figure people are going to tell her story whether she wants people to or not what we could do is I think try and be as sensitive as possible so what we did I think differently to other um, documentaries I hope is that we really didn't put anything in there that was not from a reputable source that had been checked by a lawyer um, multiple times. Uh, We didn't name her children. We didn't name any mental health disorders she supposedly has. We didn't name any medication she was supposedly on. We didn't name any illegal drugs she'd supposedly taken during her, you know, quote unquote, crazy meltdown. Uh, There were lots of things that we didn't do very deliberately. and they might not have been noticeable to everyone listening, but I think I I felt like hopefully we approached it as thoughtfully as possible. That definitely comes across. And I wondered, when you must have been, oh, can you talk us through maybe a typical day in your life, I guess, maybe focused around that time? Like, what would that take up your entire day that having that one project or are you balancing lots of other things at the same time? Like if you could, I know this is such a basic question, but we're all so fascinated by it. If you day could just take, talk us through a day in the life <laughs> of Pandora's Light. So I'm, I normally have one larger project going on at a time. So it might be recording The Missing or Britney or this new one that I'm about to do. And that will be like two or three days of the week. And then I'll normally spend a day, I would say that I do a piece of journalism once or twice a month now so if I'm doing that that would be two days of the week and I interview an author probably weekly so a day a week is reading the book prepping and then one evening a week I'm doing that so in the summer for example I was doing doing it right um so I spent probably three days of the week on that and then I would spend another day prepping an event um and then I'd normally, I normally try and have, it doesn't always work, but I normally try and have a day of uh, admin. Um, I Is that just like going back to emails? And oh, it's emails, invoices, like yeah. uh, pitching, um, going to the post office, you know, trying to actually like factor <laughs> in time. you've said social media is admin, which Kathleen and yes, I also yeah, talk about this a lot. 100% yeah. love that, that you said before, like, fitting social media in as part of a job like it's Mm. not if you don't enjoy it personally then you need to factor the time into your working day yeah it takes like 45 minutes every week for me to promote whichever episode of doing it right is happening and I also really hate doing I hate kind of pushing my work and I hate it feeling like a chore but I'm also aware that you know I I do this on my own I, I have to I'm the only one that's going to, to yeah I'm the you only know, one that's that's going it. to push it exactly so um I definitely try and think of it as work. Um, I think what's really difficult is lots of people outside of journalism, outside of the media, don't think of stuff as that as work. They think of it as fun. And I suppose the way that I would say is easy to kind of figure out what's work for someone and what's fun is, is it something they are choosing to do or is it something that's kind of incumbent as part of a project? Um, If it's kind of part of a working project, then it's, work um if it's something that you are literally doing that's got no income and no professional obligation attached then it's fun um and 
yeah, I do find myself resenting the time that that takes off in the same way that I resent the, t- the time that emails take up as well. You know, mm. I, I, I'm still learning how to factor that in so that I'm not, because I used to be very like, you know, I'll work on this eight till 10, this 10 till one. I'm now trying to be a bit more uh, fluid, a bit less kind of routined about stuff and just leave gaps to have lunch, go to the gym, mm. um, you know, sort sort my life out a bit. <laughs> like life yeah. admin, literally is, and I can't even imagine with having chil- like small children as well, like that level of life admin and never feeling that you're quite up to date with everything and that you're always chasing your to-do list. And That's the feeling, yeah. You are never on it. Like, I already feel like that now without children. Like, I'm actually quite anxious about how overwhelmed I'm going to feel all the time when I do I definitely think Um, I'm still like figuring that out that element of surrendering um to the chaos a little bit and knowing that like I cannot I'm gonna let people down and I and I can't do everything uh Oliver Berkman whose column I love for the Guardian's just written a book um about time where the main takeaway is there just isn't enough time to do all the things that you want like it's not down to productivity it's not down to be more efficient there's too much you want to do and there's not enough time and that I realized I was like that is me there's loads I want to do yeah and it's it's great I'm glad there's loads I want to do hopefully it means I'll never run out of ideas or things that I enjoy about life but it also means that it just can't all get done do you feel manic all the time or are you one of those people that can feel quite serene as you move through the Um, day because you have a structure I know you have like structured say like childcare in place so that you can get the right work done and things but how do you stop yourself from feeling like a crazy lunatic running around like a headless chicken no I've definitely I've definitely had yeah no I'd say it's pretty manic and I uh also get quite bad anxiety so I do I really do try and manage it um but you know I've realized that I just can't go out lots of nights if I'm still going to be mm. a good parent and get my work done. I so, hate going out in the week and that's without children. But you know, <laughs> I like, I don't like saying no to stuff and I get excited to be invited to stuff. So that's, um, so that's something that I'm definitely trying to figure out. I, I've been quite bad at it recently as the world's opened up again, but I used to be really strict about turning my phone off in the evenings to try and have like, basically I try and give myself stimulus free time because I'm someone very easily stimulated. And so I need to like, kind of almost like earth myself um so that's what your main coping mechanisms for dealing with anxiety because actually yeah i have to say i put in my girl group like interviewing pandora um what are like the main questions oh what were they riveting well i know i'm intrigued well a lot of them were about anxiety because all my friends going back to all girls schools all of my friends deal with quite severe not all of them but a lot of my friends deal with quite severe anxiety and it's something you've spoken about and they did say like what are her coping mechanisms now I guess that's some of them right turning your phone off yeah definitely trying to um I think yeah trying to I can keep going and going and going I'm a bit like a pack horse but you you need to um have like rest and recovery I think so if something for example like I often work in the evenings probably one or two evenings a week because it might be um an event for example so like tomorrow evening I'm interviewing Jessie Cave about her novel Sunset so I already have penciled in that I won't work on Friday morning because I'll tend to need to like decompress after doing an event um it took me a while to realize that when you're hosting when you're interviewing someone um the kind of whole mood of the room rests upon you. You have to you have to keep the energy going. And so often I would feel hungover the next day just from that, not not from drinking, but just from a, a certain pressure I felt. Like the intense energy. Mm. Yeah, so now I try and I think, okay, well, I've worked in the evening, so I'll, I'll give myself that morning off. So I try and factor in, and that's not something I used to do. We used to do the high-low tour and, you know, then we would get back to our hotel at midnight and then we would say, oh, we want to get on a train or a plane at 7am the next day so we can be back at our desk and then we get back to our desk and we would both feel completely exhausted because we would have had an event where we were talking to 2,000 people and it was a lot of uh it was a lot of pressure and then we'd come back to our hotel rooms and we wouldn't get sleep till like three or four in the morning because we'd be buzzing and then you know we'd come it down so now I just um I have I try and write off time a lot more did you literally put that in your calendar my boyfriend said I should do this actually he's like yeah time block free time I'm trying to. I've heard that that's like the best. Yeah, so I try now to not make any obligations on a Monday, for example, um, because I realised that if I'd had a really exhausting weekend, 
um with the children i also get very bad sunday night anxiety it's a, i think it's a back to school boarding school thing so i often don't sleep on a sunday night so i realized that if i had stuff on a monday i would be feeling nervous all weekend so i just don't put anything important on a monday anymore um because of having had insomnia which is anxiety related i don't i try not to put too many important things in at 9 a.m so that if i need to cancel it's something that's not really important um yeah i mean there are numerous boring tiny things i do that i think means that i'm uh looking after myself better yeah do you find as well in terms of motherhood i hope you don't mind me asking but this is something that i find like really interesting do you feel that you always either a little a slightly failing at either motherhood or career because i've heard that you just can't ever feel that you have both in like a perfect equilibrium and you always feel that you're like failing a little bit at one and doing better at the other and Mm. that's just part of being like a working mom and that's just how it is and you should just kind of go with that I I don't feel like that with motherhood I perhaps should but I try not to um overthink the fact that I don't stress too much about that um because I thought I would because I definitely worry about other stuff but that's actually a fairly anxiety-free part of my life, which is really, really nice. No, what I find difficult, actually, and something that I'm really trying to figure out at the moment is making time for a social life. I really like being there for people. Seeing, like, gal pals. And- Just more, I find it hard to do the job I want to do and be the mother I want to be and then factor in a social identity. It's just, it's really difficult. Um, Mm. and you know I say that someone that's got childcare um, obviously I'm not working while looking after the children like you know incredible all those people that did that during lockdown it I I don't know how it would I mean my 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 one-year-old doesn't stop moving there's no way I could make a podcast while he he would be destroying this room if he was in (laughs) with me so yeah I mean endless respect for people that do that um I find it even difficult like shifting through my identities and I find it hard that while we're recording this podcast I can hear my kids crying and I know my daughter will be wanting me to read her stories so even just shifting between those identities I find um like difficult enough so then to be out and about to be you know getting dolled up to know I'm not here if my kids wake up to then know I'll be tired when I wake up with them in the morning. That is, I mean, look, it's a first world problem, clearly. That's definitely something that I, is is a work in progress and probably will will always be. Is boundary setting like a really big thing that you've had to learn or is it something that's come naturally to you? No, definitely a big thing that I had to learn. Um, I think it's something we had to learn through the high-low because suddenly we were doing a job that was uh, quite popular and quite public. Um, and something like that usually like you say uh, there'd be like a team of 10 working on a project of that size in yeah yeah there's you know there's I've done projects that are smaller that have had a lot more people attached so yeah I mean it was it was very um uh loosey-goosey yeah so boundaries in terms of professional and personal for sure um and boundaries with time yeah absolutely and um I think to be honest I've got more boundaries I have found a little bit easier where I really am still learning is um, how long things take I never think anything mm. will take as long whether it's driving somewhere big optimist. cooking my lunch reading a book because I never allow for interruption <laughs> that you know I might oh, want to no. go to the loo or that my mum might call or <laughs> yeah. that um I'll have to go to the post office. Like, you know, all of all of those things. Like a machine, eight hours a day. Yeah, no, not a machine. So yes, I've definitely tried to consciously uncouple from the idea that you have to work for eight hours every day, the same hours or X, Y, Z. Yeah, exactly. So now I just try and uh, really think a little bit more holistically about, am I challenging myself, but not in a way where I feel kind of sick? Am I challenging myself within my kind of competencies? And... Uh, do I believe that this work has value and purpose and is it allowing me to enjoy the rest of my life that's kind of how I look at it now because have your markers of success sort of changed in that obviously you achieved a lot quite young you know you had the Sunday Times gig you had a big social media following you'd worked your ass off for your whole 20s to kind of cement your position within the industry people want a big social following that seems to be like 
the thing, the Holy Grail. And actually people that do have that often say that scrutiny um, and visibility is actually a very uncomfortable experience and something that they would rather shy away from once you have it. Is that something that you felt? Um, I mean, I definitely wouldn't complain about it because I'm obviously very lucky to have a platform to push my work and to push the work of other people whose work I really enjoy. Like I love sharing recommendations. That's always something that I just like doing anyway. But you do like no spawn con. And I mean that well, I haven't, I haven't like, for I a while. Like yeah, I'd, you've been very thoughtful about how you use your platform. I mean, I, I, I chose to stop doing that. I mean, I might do it again, but I chose to stop doing it a couple of years ago just because I don't place a huge amount of value on social media. And that might be, be because I've got a fair amount of followers. They might be connected. I don't know. They've never been to me. It's never been to me an ambition and it's never been to me a way that I have self-defined. So I think why I stopped doing social partnerships um, is just because I didn't want to ever feel like it was part of my... I didn't want to ever earn money through social media. Um, If it disappeared tomorrow, I wanted everything to be fine. So it's kind of trying to have a a slightly... um, I don't feel like I have a difficult relationship with it, basically. If I don't want to check it for... I mean, I at the moment do promote doing it right through it because it's like my little passion project. But when we did the high-low, I would have three weeks where I didn't go on it. I don't think we pushed it out every week. I think Abby kindly would put it on the high-lows, Twitter every week. But I just didn't want to have a job where I ever had to rely on it. Um, so that is why I didn't do... Um, partnerships on it for a while I don't know I might go back to that but yeah I wanted to have a I wanted to have a job that didn't rely on it basically I mean also and and this makes you clearly like a much better person than me in some ways I think I would just be tempted by the fact you can make really easy money doing that you can you can it's I mean and I and I I did partnership (laughs) offers like and you have such amazing fashion credentials like as much as it's not your key area of interest like oh god I don't know if I still I don't know if I do I've worn some very extraordinary stuff you literally wore something even recently you were posting about all your vintage shops oh I do love vintage gonna check that out um do you know what I I just like I could redo you know I could redo my bedroom with a two partnership I mean I suppose I just how I make decisions like that is like does it make me feel sick or not honestly it's like a gut thing oh really (laughs) like is this something is is I just don't feel nervous it's no nervous is not about because nervous can be a good thing I think because it means you're like challenging yourself and it's anticipation but it's more like would I feel is it something I'd feel embarrassed to have done Okay. Um, so it compromises you. Trying really way. hard. The to, cringe factor. Yeah, by and large, basically trying not to be... Look, this is an extremely privileged position to be in to not have to be swayed by the money. Like, most of mm. the things I do, I wouldn't do if I was... You know, I wouldn't be making docu- audio documentaries to the BBC if I was looking for a very lucrative um and that's not that you know that's not to say that I'm not very lucky with the career that I have but what I mean is I don't um you follow like what you're interested in yes I, suppose, I try I, I I I try to and I think I'm really yeah I'm really lucky that I'm in a position where I can do that because I think I do think what's quite interesting is a lot of kind of content creators um people will be like oh I can't believe they've done this I can't believe they've done that and you know lots of people have care obligations or they have young children or they're primary earners or uh you know like make bank I mean I understand why everyone's got to make different choices um and I am really fortunate in my life I think that I don't have to choose stuff based on the paycheck well Pandora we are coming to the end of our time with you so a a three uh three quick fire questions although oh gosh okay that makes it sound that makes it sound like they're gonna be quite <laughs> that flippant, makes it sound like she has to give like a five second answer no, no, me and no, take as long, as, long as long as you like as but could you <laughs> if you could give us one failure that you've really learned and grown from one achievement that you are super proud of and then just lastly what what you're so excited to do next or what you'd love to do next maybe an opportunity that hasn't yet come through uh one failure um I made writing a book an extremely painful experience I had to write it in a a shorter amount of time than would have made it enjoyable 
and it made my pregnancy and the time with my newborn uh, very difficult. So that... Was it because you were writing right across that pregnancy postpartum period yeah I wanted it to I I wanted it to come out quite soon because they were essays about modern life so I got I I got the book deal in July and then it came out the following July um and I just found out I was pregnant when I when I got it I think I can't quite remember the exact deadline but it um but it that was a very hard experience personally and I think I ruined the professional enjoyment um so I would call that a failure um the I was happy with how the book did you know I didn't have great expectations for it which is always my uh approach to everything because then anything's like happy surprise but like yeah. it, you know it sold really nicely and I, I have I, I don't like do stuff like look at Amazon reviews and stuff like that but it um some people I liked liked it and you know that was oh god I mean I'm sure there's plenty of people that don't like it like you can't if you go down that wormhole there's no coming back um so it's not more that I know if it's a failure in terms of like artistically but uh personally it felt like a failure so I think I've learned from that that I just there is no point doing that to myself um uh a a success that I have learned from um I mean, it would probably be the high-low because I just don't... I don't know if I'll ever have an experience again where I come to it so blindly and so, like, organically and open-heartedly. You know, I don't have that naivety that I had when we started that. And so I think that's that's really special and that it was just all us. I think that, yeah, that will always be... And, and, you know, all the work I do now has come from that experience. Um, so that would be probably the thing I'm proudest of. I was also really proud to work at the Sunday Times. I always wanted to work at the Times. Um, and then something I haven't done that I'd like to do. Oh, I don't know. I'm really enjoying writing audio documentaries. So maybe moving more broadly into writing documentaries. I'm not really sure, to be honest. I don't ever have... People are like, what's your five-year plan? I mean, I would not have predicted five years ago that I'd be doing what I'm doing You're now. five-year planner. That's so interesting. My God, no. Like... You're like an organizational person. You're a time frame person. I don't know. I would have assumed that you would be a five year planner. So you just can't. Really I think if you do that, I'm not. But I'm chaos. I think so. if you do that, then everything you you do becomes quite cynical because, like, so now when I'm interviewing lots of authors, for example, then that would have meant that when I was doing the Highland, we were interviewing authors. I would have had this quite like cynical part of me that would have been like, if I do this, then I'll get to be a part of people's publicity. Like it. If you approach stuff like that, then you're more likely to get let down and you're less likely to enjoy the process of getting somewhere. So I try and just really immerse myself in whatever I'm doing at the time. And I think like six months ahead. So I know what I'm doing for the next six months, but I don't know after that. I have absolutely no clue after that. And I think it's quite good for me not to know. I also do think in the creative industry, so many opportunities come from contacts and conversations that you you actually can't predict predict. Yeah. No, and it also comes off like the basis of like how the last thing you've done has gone. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. Well, Pandora, thank you so much for coming on Straight Up. Very, very finally, I feel like we have to ask you, and this is not a trick question, you can choose whatever you like. What would your walkout song be? Just if there was like a song, like what's the first thing that's coming to mind right now when I Literally say this? Literally the first thing that came to my mind is when you R said Kelly? that. Don't say no, it. No, the first thing that came to my mind the is... The Birdhouse Family. <laughs> is Slam Dunk the Funk by Five. Oh my God, fun. I'm loving that. That's I a good love choice. That. No that idea why. Song. I did love you Five can... as well. God, I love them. <laughs> you will exit with applause. It's so random, by the way. Like anything could have just come into my mind. Like I said, I'm not, there's, there's no musical learnings to be had from this. 